We're going to be in Romans 8 tonight, and uh, it is such a uh, wonderful passage. It is deep and rich and full, and, and uh, you know, in, in trying to uh, figure out how to explain the quality of this passage of Scripture, uh, this, this probably reveals a, more about me than it does about Scripture, but, but uh, in trying to figure out how to explain all of the wonderful things that are in Romans chapter 8, I, I thought of barbecue sauce. And uh, of course, there's a lot of things in my life that makes me think of barbecue sauce. Uh, but uh, but but I, I like a good barbecue sauce. And 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 I have to say, sadly, much of the nation is still in the dark ages when it comes to to good sauce. But the the thing about a good barbecue sauce is that when you're when you're making that sauce, it's it's filled with a lot of different ingredients and. I mean, you, you know, you probably got some vinegar and molasses and, and all kinds of different spices and different things in there. And what that does is it gives that sauce various layers of depth and, and taste. And, and the book of Romans is like that in the sense that there are all these different things going on in the book and there are all of these intricate flavors. And, and you know, it'd be easy to just take a taste of the book of Romans, you taste the sauce and you say, oh, Romans, it's just so good. But what we're doing is we're, we're trying to catch the individual flavors as we go through the text. I, I just don't want to miss things. Excuse me. <coughs> uh, Romans 8 is, is, is one of the most beloved passages in, in the Bible, but but people often read it and, and like they do other passages that are well known and they, they just sort of pick out the flavors that grab them and uh, the things that they really like. And, and then when we do that, we miss a lot, of what's, a, a lot of what's going on in the passage. So we're going to take our time walking through Romans uh, chapter 8 especially because uh, what we do, we pick out pieces of it. And, and, uh, but but what we're, we want to look at Romans 8, we want to... We want to pick up each each piece, and and that means that we're probably going to be in Romans eight for for several weeks, to be honest. Uh, and we're just going to take our time because I want to capture all the flavors, the full teaching. And then what we'll do is we'll zoom out periodically as we're going through the passage, so that uh, we can see how it fits into the rest of Romans and how it fits into uh, the rest of the Bible, how it all connects together. So, but but I want to start by reading uh, what Peter said about Paul. Did you know Peter? talked about Paul. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter said this about Paul, the author of the book of Romans. He said, as in all his letters, he writes about these things in which some things are hard to understand. The apostle Peter, here is this fisherman and he's reading these letters from Paul and he's saying there's some, th- some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. You know, people say the Bible is simple and, and, and that's true. Uh, the, the, ba- the basic message of the Bible is simple. Anybody can read it and understand it. Uh, but it's also impl- at times rather complex because it's a large book. There are some things that are very easy to understand and some other things that are, that are very hard to understand. And some of, some of what Paul writes is hard to understand. So, you know, we're, we'll take our time and grapple with some of those things as, that are a little harder to understand. And in, in my experience, people who teach Romans 8, and even, even when I've taught on it, Sometimes in the past, it's it, it's easier to we tend to zoom to the easier stuff uh, and focus on that because you you can get a lot of teaching on just on the easy easy stuff and the and and it's it, but and sometimes it's easy to skip some of the flavors that are there, but uh, we're going to try not to do that. So so let's let's start together in Romans chapter eight verse one. One of my favorite verses, I don't even know how many times I've quoted it, not only to other people, but to myself. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No condemnation. Now, now condemnation is a very interesting word in the way that it's being used here. We need to understand this. There is a difference between conviction and condemnation. There, there's a difference. Condemnation means that you are condemned in the sense that you, that you are damned, damned, that you are condemned to hell, that you are condemned to an eternity apart from God. That's condemnation in the context of Romans 8. But and he says there is no condemnation. There is, however, such a thing as conviction. Christians do experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit 
And if you're in Christ and you, you fail, you, you, you sin, you, you blow it, you, you should feel conviction. You should feel bad about the thing that you, you, that you did, but what you ought not feel is condemned. And there are many, many Christians that, that feel condemned. They live in this state of condemnation. Sometimes it's because the enemy is bringing back things of the past, and other times it's because uh, they, they have refused to let go of things that God has already forgiven them for. But, but there are many Christians, you know, most of them never really discipled, and as a consequence, they're very weak Christians. And uh, the idea of conviction versus condemnation just never even crosses their minds. And, 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 then, and, and, and if they feel convicted by the Holy Spirit, they, they interpret that and, and feel condemned. And, and then they have to have the Lord restore them and, and remind them of His grace and His love. And, and, and so then they feel restored and they feel such peace and comfort in their lives. And then guess what? Because they're human, they blow it again. They fail. They sin. And then they feel convicted by the Holy Spirit and they interpret that incorrectly and feel condemned. But what we're told here is that there is no condemnation for for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that is a very important and powerful concept, in Christ Jesus. Do you know what it means to be in Christ? You know, uh, well, first of all, it tells me that my salvation has nothing to do with earning my way to heaven because it, it, being in Christ is, has nothing to do with my behavior and me being, being good enough and acting good enough to earn my salvation. And Paul has made that very clear all the way through Romans so far, made it very clear that, that this is by faith uh, through, through the grace of God uh, apart from works. We, we see that phrase all the time through there. But it's not about that. No, no, I'm in Christ. And if you listen, I want to say this: if you struggle with feeling condemned whenever you're convicted, I, I encourage you to do your own private Bible study of Ephesians chapters one through three. Just take your time with it, carefully and and thoughtfully read through Ephesians one, two, and three, and look at what it says, and and specifically highlight what it says, what it means to be in Christ, because that's what Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is all about, what it means to be in Him. And that phrase, in Him, or in Christ, is used over and over and over and over again in that passage. And it says things like that those who are in Christ, that we are holy and we are without blame before Him in love. That's me? I'm holy and without blame? I don't feel that way. See, what we're going to be talking about Here, what what he's talking about here, and we'll elaborate on a little bit more detail later. It's about it's it's about a positional truth, and I'll explain what I mean by that a little in just a minute. But I want you to understand there is no category of people who are in Christ and are yet condemned. That category of people does not exist. So if you're in Christ, you are not condemned. You say, but I'm just, I'm messed up. I'm really messed up. I'm, I'm seriously messed up. You know, they say, Pastor Dave, you like, you got sissy sins, but, but I got sins that are really serious. Well, you know, that, that's why we've launched into Romans 8 from Romans 7. That's why Roman is, Romans 7 is there. Do you remember Romans 7? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The things that I hate, I do. The things that I, that I, that I want to do, I don't do. What's wrong with me? I'm messed up. I'm a wicked, evil sinner. Romans 7 takes us to the depths of man's depravity so that it can show us that even there, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's utter grace and forgiveness. There is complete salvation. In other words, you're you're actually saved, not just helped by Jesus. You're saved by Jesus. And my my heart rests in that. That, And that's the only way that you'll ever ever find rest. You'll never have peace if you're looking to your good works to try to affirm how saved you are. If you're trying to measure how saved you are by by looking at your good works, you'll never have peace because you'll never know where where the line is, how how you measure up uh, in in your life. That's ultimately not going to be the qualification. It's going to be God's grace, period. 
His grace, period. Now, you may have noticed that there is a condition in Romans 8, 1, depending on what version you're reading. You might be thinking, but, but, but Pastor Dave, what about the rest of the verse? It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, <clears throat> excuse me, but according to the Spirit. Now, this is a very interesting issue. And there, there, there are some who may be uh, following along in a different version than what I'm using. And, you, and you're looking at your Bible and you're saying, I, I don't even have that phrase in my Bible. And that's true if you're using uh, NASB or ESV or NIV or, or if you have one of several uh, other versions, you're not even going to have that phrase, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And, and the reason for that is that it's likely not part of the original passage. It seems as though this phrase, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, was inserted from verse 4, because it does show up in verse 4, but they inserted it into verse 1. Uh, but, but it's not in verse 1 in, in the most ancient manuscripts and, in, and most translations. And, and by that I mean the vast majority of translations just leave, leave that phrase out in the main text of the Scripture. And maybe I'll teach on this a little bit more at another time in, in, in greater depth. But, but let, let me just say this. Uh, This is not a question of conspiracies or polluting the gospel or any kind of weird, weird thing like that. This is a translation issue. That's all this is. It's, It's simply people looking at the ancient manuscripts and they're saying, what do we think the original text said? And that's why even even in your Bible, if it's if you're if the that phrase is not there, there's probably a little uh, little uh, uh, footnote or something or a, mar, uh, a note in the margin of your Bible that tells you that this phrase is 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 not found in most ancient manuscripts of the Bible. I personally think it's just not there in the original. But 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 you know maybe you've seen I've seen some of these memes that uh, go around every so often on Facebook or something like that some of these other social media and they start telling you how evil the NIV is and, and how they've left out important things. But I, I just want, I just want to put your heart to rest. That is just simply not true. Those, those memes that go around are not true. Let, let me explain it like this and, and it'll help you hopefully uh, kind of lay to rest some unease that you may have when you see some of those things. When, when the King James version was translated, they were translating from the, the most ancient manuscripts that they had available to them at the time in the 1600s. All right? And it was, and it was a good translation. Uh, basically, it was a good translation based on the manuscripts that they had. But, but what, what has happened is that since the King James Version was translated, archaeologists have, since that time, have discovered other manuscripts, and the other manuscripts that they found were older than the ones that they had available when they translated the King James Version. Now, when an older manuscript is found, it's generally considered to be more authoritative than a newer manuscript. Um, And so so when they compared the older, more reliable manuscripts to the manuscripts that were used when they translated the King James Version, they found that there were a few places, not very many, but there were a few places where there were minor differences. Now, here's the good news. Here's what you you understand. That all of these places where any of these changes or these things were not found in these other manuscripts, the changes there, they were so minor that it does not change the theology of the Bible or the theology of salvation or the theology of Christ and sin. It does not change any major doctrinal issues at all. So when you see those memes and they say, oh, they're leaving this out... No, it, what, what, what they're missing the point that, that these newer translations that are using older manuscripts that they have been discovered since the King James, that, uh, that, that it does not change any, any major doctrines at all. Uh, but, and that's what's happening here in Romans 8.1. So the question is, if we're looking at that phrase, does this teach something different if the phrase is there versus if the phrase is not in there? And I think the answer to that is it doesn't change what the passage is teaching at all. This is a, this is a translation issue. Let, let's just suppose that Romans 8.1 should include the phrase, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So then, does that mean that if I'm in Christ, 
and I walk according to the Spirit, now there's no condemnation. But if I'm in Christ and I don't walk according to the Spirit, now I'm condemned? Because it, it, it can't be, because if that were true, then the real condition for being uncondemned is walking in the Spirit behaviorally versus being in Christ positionally. I, I, I would say that's not what Paul is teaching here. I think Romans 8, 1, that last part is more like a description of what it means to be in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. End of story. Well, what do they look like? Oh, you can see it. They walk, they're the ones that are walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh. We need to understand being in Christ is positional based. It is not performance based. I'm going, to, I'm going to explain it very simply in a way that I think will help you understand this. Uh, Julie is my wife. I am her husband. That is my position in that relationship. Now, if I'm not being a great husband on one particular day, do I stop being her husband? No. She may, there may be days in our, in our marriage that she wished that were true, but that's just not true. Julie's, Julie's husband is the guy that loves her and cares for her and encourages her and cherishes her. That's my behavior in that, in that relationship. Yet if I'm not acting in loving, caring, encouraging ways, does that mean that I suddenly stop being her husband? No, because there is a position versus a condition issue. My condition in those moments does not match my position. And that's a problem. But when we're talking about this in Romans 8, it's not a salvation issue. So, so it's not like you can say to people, you're in Christ, but you're not walking according to the Spirit enough. So even though you're in Christ, you're condemned. You cannot be in Christ and be condemned. There is no category of people that are in Christ Jesus and condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So, so even if that phrase is there, it should not challenge your comfort in the grace of Christ or the fact that you're not condemned. And, and I hope that, that this understanding of some of these things brings some, some rest to you and some peace to you uh, in, in your life. Let, let's move on to verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. So, first question. What is the law of the spirit of life? Well, you remember the last time we were together, which was actually two weeks ago, we were, I taught you some, it may have even been three weeks ago, uh, I taught you some vocabulary words and, uh, for the book of Romans. And one of those vocab words was, was the word law. And we talked about how Paul uses this word a lot in different ways, in a lot of different ways, particularly in the book of Romans. Sometimes he means a general rule of life. Sometimes he means an Old Testament law. Sometimes he's talking about our, our conscience. Uh, there are various different ways he uses the word. But here the, the word, the law of the spirit of life, I think is talking about how when someone is born again, that they now have a new way of living. They have a new rule of life under which they are living, living in the Spirit. That's the law of the Spirit of life. So basically, think, think of your new nature. That's what it's referring to. And this is, this is all throughout this chapter. And we're going to see this concept of walking in the Spirit and being in the Spirit and having God's Spirit. Uh, and you'll, now, here's something else I want you to see. There's another translation sort of issue in verse 2. Because there it says the, the, the law of the spirit of life. You notice that that's a capital S on the word spirit. What, what does that mean if there's a capital S? It, okay, it means that we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Now what you might not know uh, in, is that, that this is a translator's opinion. There is no capital for the word spirit in the original Greek. It's just the word spirit. There's no capital or non-capital letters. It's just the word spirit. The only way to know what it's referring to, that it's referring to the Holy Spirit, is to, is to read the text in context, and, and that tells you if, if it's the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing uh, when you see, in some translations, you see the H in the word him capitalized when it's referring to God. And many translators will capitalize it. That's, that's the translator's Opinion. They're saying, we think this is about God, so we're going to capitalize it. 
in order to help the reader understand about whom it's talking. Now, now generally speaking, this is a, this is a good thing. I, I like this. I mean, yeah, I mean, make it easier for me. Why not? Thanks, you, you saved me some time. However, it's, it's not bad to understand these things. So you can you just say, hey, just let me just be aware that the capital letter is, is an interpretation, not a translation. Now, and, and we get into this. I want you to understand it's impossible to translate without having some small amount of interpretation going on. Uh, it's just not possible. Anyone who's bilingual knows this. So someone speaking Spanish might say, yo tengo hambre. And the translator would say, would translate that phrase. They would, they, would, they would say, that person said, I'm hungry. Don't, the only problem is that's, that's not what they said. Uh, they actually said, I have hunger. But that doesn't make any sense to us in English. And so the translator interpreted what was said and then communicated it to us in a way that we can understand. That's what biblical translators do. Uh, this, the same Spanish speaker might say, uh, might say voy, a, uh, voy a la Casa Blanca. And the translator would translate for us and say, I am going to the White House. Only that's not exactly what he said. He literally said, going to a house white, if you go word by word. But that wouldn't make sense to us. We'd like, that's a weird thing to say, a weird way to say it. So the translator interpreted in a way that we can easily understand. You can't translate without having some level of interpretation going on. And that's not a bad thing. It's just something uh, about which you might want to be aware. So as you read the, the rest of this chapter, you'll see all of these capital S's when it talks about the Spirit. And, and I think they're right. I think they're correct. I think the Holy Spirit is constantly brought up. And there, there are times when you read this, it's, it's absolutely irrefutably speaking of the Holy Spirit. So, so the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit who gives me life. This is how I'm now living. This is the new law. And, and that has set me free, he says, from the law of sin and death. But, but what is the law of sin and death? We read about the law of sin and death in the Old Testament. God says to the people of Israel, do this and you will live. That's right. If you don't, then you will the other one. <laughs> That's right. You will die. Uh, that's the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. That's the law of sin and death. In fact, it even goes back before the, the, the time of Moses and the law of Moses because when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he tells them of the tree, uh, speaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he, he says, don't eat of it because the day you eat of it, you will, you will die. Sin and death. Sin equals death. So, so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, then what will set me free from this? Because if I'm not set free from this, I am a sinner. Therefore, I will die. Well, I need the Holy Spirit to bring a, a new life to me. I'm born again. This is a positional reality. Now, and now there's no condemnation. It all connects together. It's the theology of Christianity. And I want you to, I want you to kind of, uh, I want to give you another food illustration. Must be hungry. Must have been hungry when I was typing everything up today. Uh, but, uh, but, but I want you to see something here. I have a chili recipe that I really like. I, I'm disappointed. We probably won't be able to have our chili cook off, but, but it's a chili recipe I've done many times, and I really enjoy it. It's very, very delicious in my opinion. And, but the recipe calls uh, uh, for, for whole jalapeno peppers to be placed in the pot while the chili is simmering. Not cut up or anything, just whole peppers. However, when the, when the chili is done, when you're finally, finally finished, and uh, then you, you squeeze the juice out of the jalapenos, and then you actually remove them from the chili. The law is like the jalapenos from my chili. They, they were put in so that the flavor could diffuse, and it was kept for a time. And then the law was, in a sense, removed because its job was done. However, that, that broth continues to carry the flavors of the law. You know, we look at the Old Testament law and we see that it was placed on Israel for a time to teach lessons. It was removed, but in a sense, 
its effect and its impact remains. And, and that's what gives us the fullness of the gospel. You know, our, our, your, our chili won't taste right without all of the things in there. And that's the idea. The gospel will not be right unless you understand the law and its relationship with us. So the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. You're not under the law. You're not under its rules. You're not under the consequences of the law. But this is where I'm talking about the flavors. You are still experiencing its flavors because there are moral truths that are that are laid out in the law that are eternal and lasting things that we've learned from the law as well as other lessons. So so I'm under a new rule under new law and that's the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to jump around a little bit. So just try to, to stay with me. Turn to Luke chapter 316. I want to pull together a few different passages of scripture in connection with Romans 8. Luke 3.16 says this, John answered them all, I indeed baptize you with water. So we're talking about John the baptizer here. Uh, But one mightier than I is coming. That's Jesus. The strings of whose shoes I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. Uh, the Holy Spirit, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What, what does that mean? Well, I think, the, I think the Holy Spirit is obvious. Jesus is going to give us the Holy Spirit. John said, I immerse you in water, and He's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. However, however what's, what's the part about the, the fire about? He said Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And, and, and I know we've had, you've probably heard different people translate that different ways, but I think it tells us right here. Look at verse 17. Because he goes on, Jesus is still speaking. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and he's, and he's uh, excuse me, John is still speaking. And he says, uh, his fan is in his hand. Now, his fan is in his hand. That's, his, that's a winnowing fan. That's a tool that was used for threshing wheat. They would take the wheat uh, from the harvest into onto the threshing floor, and then they would just smash it and beat it, and, and you know do all this stuff to it, and then they would throw it up in the air. And if there was if there was a windy if it was a windy day, then the wind would carry the chaff away because the wheat was too heavy to be carried by the wind, and all the chaff, the junk that they didn't want, would blow away in the wind. But if the, if there was no wind, then they would make their own wind uh, with, and they would, that's what they would use the winnowing fan for. And the winnowing fan would, would blow wind onto the wheat in order to blow the chaff away. So, so it, what it represents here, when we talk about the fire, it really represents judgment in the sense of separation from the good and the bad. Because he, he said his fan is on the, his hand and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor and will gather the wheat into his granary, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So there, there's the fire. So, so this Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, and let me explain it like this. When you encounter Christ, you're either going to receive him and get the Holy Spirit, or you're going to reject him and receive wrath and judgment. That's why it's the Holy Spirit and fire. Some people, maybe you've heard this, and if you disagree with me, that's okay, because uh, this is not a salvation issue, but some people relate the fire to a passionate experience of being on fire for Jesus. And listen, there are plenty of passages uh, that speak to our need to be passionate about following Jesus. But in this context, that, that isn't what the fire is all about. Now, now, why do I bring this up here where he talks about being baptized in the Holy Spirit? That's really the part I want to focus on, but that he's going to baptize us in the Spirit. Um, I bring it up because this is the law of the Spirit of life. This is the new thing. This is what he's talking about. Jesus comes and he gives us this new thing that was not there uh, going on before. Even John, when he baptized people, they they didn't get the Holy Spirit, that, that indwelling experience. However, when Christ came, he died on the cross and then he rose again and he gives us the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I'm no longer under the law. I'm walking in the Spirit. Because here's the key that I think will help us get this. Those who are in the Spirit don't need the law because now you have a new relationship or a, a new law, in a sense, in which you live. So I think this will become a little more clear as we go forward. I want to draw more of these parallels between the Old Testament law and the Holy Spirit because there's some great lessons here. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Jews were told to walk in God's law. 
Uh, if you actually search the, the Bible uh, for walk and law together, you'll see over and, and over again where it, where it says, walk in my law, walk in my statutes, walk in my ways, walk in the things I've told you to do. And a great example of this would be Psalm 119 verse 1 where it says, blessed are those whose way is blameless. Okay, what does it mean to be blameless in the, in the eyes of the law? Who walk in the law of the Lord. So the Jewish person was called to walk in the law. However, as Christians, where in the New Testament are we ever told to walk in the law? We're not. In fact, we're told in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So before in Psalm 119, it says, if you want to be blameless, if you want to be without sin, I won't be sinning if I walk in God's law. But now I'm told here that if I, that I, that if I want to live that way, if I, I won't be sinning if I walk in God's spirit. Now, now, why didn't they just walk in the spirit back then? Well, it's because that relationship was not established until after Christ. That's, that's the difference. They, the difference was that they could not do this. It was not an option for them. There is a real change. There's something new that happens here. There's a shift. Not in the, not in the way that we get saved. How we get saved has always been the same. Paul made that clear in Romans 4. Abraham was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. It was all grace. It was all forgiveness. So the salvation method has always been the same, but the experience has shifted now that we have the Holy Spirit. So this new, stu- this new thing. Jeremiah 31 talks about this new covenant or this new law, this new thing that's coming, and it relates to this as well. Let me read it to you. Jeremiah 31, 31. Surely the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with, and with the house of Judah. It will not be according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt because they broke my covenant, although although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So there's a law. They they failed in keeping the law, and and, and that's the same as me. I, I, I failed keeping God's righteous standard. But here's the new covenant, verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then Jesus comes, Jeremiah is saying, there's a new covenant. God's saying through him, there's a new covenant coming. Then Jesus comes on the scene. And then at the Passover meal, the, what we call the Last Supper, the night before his crucifixion, he lifts up this cup and he says, this cup is the new what? Is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new thing. And it enters us into a Holy Spirit relationship with God. This is, and don't miss this, in Jeremiah 31, this is a theological prophecy. This is a prophecy about a theological reality that will take place because of Christ. I think that's really powerful. Sometimes we forget that various passages of Scripture were written hundreds of years apart from each other. And then we have this prediction and fulfillment going on that, that Jeremiah would see this coming day uh, when, when the, the, the God's law would be written on our hearts That's the spirit. We walk in the spirit because we have a spirit in us. So if we follow the spirit, we're going to be fulfilling the law because the Holy Spirit is not going to lead us to do something that is is displeasing to God. So uh, anyway, the the, the, the theology of the New Testament is, is actually embedded in the Old Testament. Roman keeps just driving this into us. He he goes to the Old Testament to, to prove the gospel over and over and over again. It's a really powerful thing. I can actually look at the New Testament and I can verify it. I can ratify it through the Old Testament. And, and this sets Christian theology apart from many other religions uh, like Islam or, or Mormonism. Islam and Mormonism claim to have fidelity to the Old Testament, as, as does Christianity. Uh, they, they even claim to hold... To the, to, not just to the Old Testament of God, but they even claim to hold in the New Testament as well. You may, may not be aware of that. They'll, they'll claim to hold on to all of these things, and yet 
they break the scriptures by having theological beliefs that are in opposition to what the Bible actually teaches. Like it or not, these are in the, the words in the Bible, they're actual words on a page, and they actually say something specific. You can't just do whatever you want with it and be honest. And so in, in Islam and in Mormonism, there's a defying of the, of the New Testament. For, for example, the scripture in the New Testament says that Jesus was crucified and he rose again on the third day. Uh, this is absolutely a central tenet of Christianity. This is, this is foundational truth for us as a Christian. There's, if you don't have that, you don't have Christianity. However, Islam teaches that Jesus never died on a cross. In fact, it teaches that he never died at all, let again rose again. Islam teaches that God has no son. And it's taught that, that it's the greatest of sins to say that God has a son. It's called shirk, S-H-I-R-K. Uh, and that and, and includes more than that, but it, but it includes saying that God has a son. And, and listen, I mean, how much of the New Testament do we have to tear out and throw away in order to teach that? And not only that, I mean, we, we have to also tear out chunks of the Old Testament as well. Uh, and, and now what's happened is we've broken the chain of threads connecting the Old and the New Testaments, the, the gospel message throughout the scripture. So, so Islam destroys the Bible, yet Muslims are taught that they stand upon the scriptures. Mormonism does, does the same thing. It teaches things like that, that Jesus is a created being. Um, that Jesus, not only is he a created being, but he is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of things. I don't have time to get into all of the teachings there, but, but they, 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 it has teachings that Jesus is a created being, that God is a created being. Brigham Young actually taught, actually said that Adam is the only God that we have anything to do with, that Adam became our God for the, over this world, uh, and, and, and that God was this created being that used to be a human, or at least a humanoid, and who lived in, in, in some faraway place near a star called Kolob. This, this, is in the, this is in their teaching. And he lived a good enough life as a humanoid to become a God and to be deified. And and then for, forgive me for this if this is too much, but this is the doctrine of Mormonism. Then that God had a wife or, or more likely many wives and he had intercourse with them and they produced spirit babies. And those spirit babies are then, uh, you know, that was us. That was us. And, and they teach that we had this preexistent life in heaven and that we chose to come to the earth and forget about that life just for the chance of becoming gods ourselves. Well, this, this just wrecks the threads connecting the Old and the New Testament. It fights against all of the scriptures to say these things. I mean, to think that there are multiple gods, to, to think that God has had his own God before him. You know, in Isaiah, God says that he's the only God, that he, he doesn't know any other gods. You know, this is interesting because, because here's what, what happens in conversations. If you talk long enough, especially with hardcore Muslim or Mormon apologists, people who are really working hard to defend that that faith what they'll do is they'll start by saying we believe the bible and the bible affirms us and our theology however the more you you go into get into the details of islam and the more you get into the details of mormonism and their beliefs then they'll start to attack the bible now i've seen this happen multiple times they they start to say things like well well, the Bible has been changed. Well, the, the Bible's been corrupted. Well, you can't really trust what it says there. So, so think about this. What they're really saying is, we stand on the foundation of the Bible, except that whenever it comes to how, it's, how we're different than the rest of Christianity, that area of the Bible has been corrupted. It's only where the Bible disagrees with me where it's been corrupted. Yet the truth is there is no manuscript evidence to support any of those claims of corruption. In fact, I'm telling you right now, there is no ancient piece of literature in the world that even comes close to the amount of manuscript evidence that we have for the Bible. We know the Bible is accurately translated. We know that it is not corrupted. We know that there, there is nothing in the world out there that says that Mormonism or Islam might be biblical and pe people miss, miss this. They forget that Islam tries to stand upon the scriptures, but, but then while standing upon it, they're ripping pages of it, meaning that it can't possibly be true.
Now, now my point here is that Romans is drawing all of these things together from the Old Testament and from Old Testament times. And, and, and it's in complete agreement. It's, it's teaching us the fullness of things from Jeremiah and Luke and from the teachings of Jesus and, and John the baptizer. And, and they're, they're coming together in this new relationship with God through the Holy Spirit that we have salvation by faith. And it's always been that way. And it's just you see it all throughout the scriptures. And, 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 and only Christianity can do this. Only Christianity can say we hold true to the Old Testament. In fact, not even, even modern-day Judaism doesn't hold true to the Old Testament. There isn't any Judaism like the Old Testament Judaism going on in the world today. In fact, it's, it's called rabbinic Judaism for a reason, because they're, they're following rabbis' teachings rather than the, actual, than the actual plain teachings of Scripture. So if we're going to stand true and have our battleground on the Scriptures, that's, that's a good place to be. Because then we ask, what does it actually say? Because we know that it's accurate. We have the manuscript evidence. That's what Paul does. And hopefully, hopefully we're equipping ourselves to do that as well. Now I know that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of information. You might want to listen to this again later to try to soak more of it in. But let's, let's move on to verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And concerning sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous uh, requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, so Paul is giving us all of these contrasting ideas. The old covenant and the new. The, spirit, the law of the Spirit of life and the law of, the, of sin and death. The flesh versus the Spirit. These are contrasting points. So let's begin to break it down. What was it? that the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, according to verse 3. What the law could not do was that it could not make me right with God. It could not make me clean before God. It could not get me to even obey God. It could not give me life. In fact, all it could offer me was death. That's what Romans uh, 7 says too, uh, verse 10. He says, in the commandment, which was intended for life, so it was there for life, proved to be death in me. It can't bring me life. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and killed me through it. We talked about that a a few weeks ago. Sin used the fact that there were penalties for breaking the law to kill me. So what the law can't do is that it can't make me right with God. Why? Why can't the law make me right with God? Well, the law is weak because of my flesh the the law the issue isn't the law it, it, that the law is a problem the issue is that i am the problem you remember we talked about the wet paint sign a wet paint sign proves how messed up people are because you see a wet paint sign people want to ch- touch it or, or you know the don't step on the grass sign just proves how messed up we are the the don't push this button sign proves how messed up we are because we just want to go do it if you tell someone don't do that, then they want to go do it. That just proves how, how that they're messed up because a, a loving person would be like, why would I want to go do what you just asked me not to do? But our response is, but I want to, you know, uh, th- because there's something wrong with me. The weakness is in my flesh. Now, now Romans has been teaching us a ton about this stuff. In Romans chapter one, it taught us how sinful man is. We just look around uh, and, and see the, the wickedness of man in general. And some people try to deny this, but this is a very important doctrine in Christianity that man is wickedly sinful. Uh, what I find interesting is that people often try to deny this by pointing to imaginary people that they've never met. Have you ever noticed this? Uh, just, just think about the logic of this. If, if I'm going to say that mankind is not sinful... Why can't I pick somebody that I know as an example? Hmm. No, I have to pick some random monk out in the middle of the Himalayan mountains somewhere and use them as my example and tell a story about a person I've never met that that's my example of a person who hasn't sinned. Now, failing that, what will they offer then is their example that mankind isn't really sinful like this. Well, the example they'll offer then is children. Now, personally, I believe confidently in the idea that there is an age of accountability before God 
So, so this really doesn't actually challenge the Christian view. But, but I will just say this. Don't tell me, don't even try to tell me that kids are not sinful. Don't tell me that. I mean, have you met them? Have you, have you met any children? Uh, I've never met anybody quicker to lie than, 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 than a child. Uh, and, and, you know, at first it seems cute to us, but then it gets into worse things. But, I mean, have you, ever, have you ever had that kid in your house where you have to try to hide certain things because that child would try to steal them? You know, you're like, why are that child's pockets bulging so much? And they're just like going around your house putting things in their pockets. You know, we love kids. There's a beauty in children. And there is an innocence in children, but it's by reason of accountability or lack of accountability due to their age, but not by reason of being sinful, sinless. That, that's not the case. Mankind is sinful and, and attempts to tell us that we're not sinful actually reveal that we are. Uh, Romans goes on in, Roman, in Romans chapter 2. It talks about just how not just the ungodly have failed in sin, but the religious have failed in sin. I mean, who are you? As, you, as soon as you turn and point your finger at the, all, those, all those wicked people, the, the, you point the finger at yourself because you've done the same stuff. You've done the same thing. Whenever you shake your fist at that, at that driver for doing something, you, you probably did the same thing five minutes ago. We, we do the same stuff. And then Roman continues and talks about how it all came about. Talks about Adam and how in Adam we all sin. We all, we all uh, fall through Adam. And it, it also talks about what sin feels like. And, and it talks about sort of the psychology of being a human who deals with that internal battle of knowing what's right yet doing what's wrong. That, that's Romans 7, uh, which my heart identifies with. Uh, you know, because, you know, oh, wretched man that I am. There are days, I don't know about you, but there are days when it seems like I, like I have yet to get past Romans 7. And so it just, it just reveals my inability. But now here's, here's the thing. Here's the good news. Romans 8 is telling us God fixed it. God fixed it. In the passage that we just read, it says what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God did. What the law could not do, God did. The law couldn't, make, it couldn't because of my sinful weakness in the flesh. God fixed the problem. The law couldn't make me right with God, so God made me right with God. He fixed the problem. God restored my relationship with God. He undid my death sentence by taking it upon himself, and he made a way for me to have a new nature and a new life. How, how did he do it? It continues. Verse 3, God did, uh, what, uh, said what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own sin, son. God sent his own son. That's step one. God sent his own son. How? In the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, there was a, an early heresy in, the, in church history called Gnosticism. And uh, I, I wouldn't even take the time to teach on this, except that it has become more and more popular uh, to use Gnosticism to attack the Word of God and to attack Christianity. There are guys like a man named Bart Ehrman who, who go around suggesting that the Gnostics were legitimate Christians, that they were like the original Christians. And uh, there are those who claim that in the early church after Jesus came and after Christianity started to spread that there were a, a whole lot of different versions of Christianity. And they, they say that, that, that we had what they call Christianities, um, now, listen, this is really actually very easy to overcome because when, we, when you're holding in your hand, when you have your Bible, you, we have the text, the text of Christianity right here. Uh, if you want to see what Christianity is all about, just go to the text. But, but that's not the agenda for these people. Their agenda is different. They're, they're trying to pull Christianity apart. They're trying to deconstruct it in a bad way. But I want you to notice this in this text here. And, and I need you, we need to know, too, that these epistles uh, from Paul are, are very early historically. They were actually written down on paper uh, earlier than the Gospels were even written. So this is very early in the history of the church. And what we have here is the statement that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, now one of the teachings of, of the, the Gnostic heresy is that Jesus never had a phys physical body. So... In, in the Gnostic teachings, now maybe you remember that 
the, old, the poem, Footprints in the Sand. You know, we, we love that story uh, that it tells there. But, but if you were a Gnostic, that story would be very different because you'd have Jesus walking with you along the beach and then all of a sudden there's only one set of footprints instead of two. However, it's not because he carried you to the Gnostic. It's because he doesn't have, leave footprints because he's not really there. It's this idea that Jesus is a spirit, that it, but he has no body uh, because Gnosticism, we talked about this in recent weeks too, that they thought that all, they bought into the belief that all physical things are evil. Therefore, if it's evil, Jesus could not have had a physical body. And then there were other Gnostics that taught that, that he had a body, but he had to be delivered from his body. And, and so they said that, that Jesus actually helped, G, Judas actually helped Jesus because he helped him by getting him killed so he could get out of his body. It's just weird, creepy stuff that certainly is not biblical and it's certainly not Christianity. But Gnosticism doesn't believe it when it says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh, he comes and he has his own flesh. It's how he came. Now I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, I want to talk about this. This is theology about Jesus here. How is it that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh? Philippians chapter 2 is one of the uh, chief passages in Scripture about this. Starting in verse 5, it says this, Let this mind be in, in you all, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I want you to notice this. Jesus is preexistent, and then he comes into physical form. He's equal with God, but he comes in into physical form so that he might bear our sins. He humbles himself. He's obedient. He dies on the cross for us. And then if you keep reading in Philippians, he's raised from the dead and he's eternally exalted as a result. Now, now what's interesting here is that Jesus had a preexistence as equal with God, whereas you and I, we simply start existing in the womb. That, that's when I began to exist, was in my mother's womb. Now, now, Mormon teachers uh, get this all turned around. Mormons have been taught that everyone had a preexistence. We already mentioned that a little bit. And, and, and so they, 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 it kind of helps them avoid the idea that Jesus is somehow God in the flesh. So, so the, they say we're, we're all up there in a sense sort of equal with God. However, this is just not the case. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 tells, tells this. Uh, uh, this. Uh, uh, think about this. If, if we're all preexistent, then Adam was existing before he was in the garden, right? That would be the logical conclusion. But what does Genesis 2, 7 say? It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. He wasn't already a living being. He became a living being right there in the garden when God formed him. Adam did not come from a preexistence and inhabit his body. Christ, however, came and, in, and inhabited his body because he was preexistent. So we see a clear teaching here, there that I, I think would help uh, you know, Mormon kind of shake away some of the theology they've been taught. So, so man was made, Christ was sent. Man was made, Christ was sent. That's a big difference. He was sent. So, so he was sent. That's what Romans 8, 3 says. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's how he came. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, I, I will say this. That does, that does not mean that Jesus sinned. Uh, we know clearly from Scripture that he never sinned, but he was tempted. And that's the sense. The sinful flesh was the source of the temptation for him. He had to face real temptation or he would not have been one of us. Um, but then it talks about what happened on the cross. It says here in Romans uh, 8.3, it says, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now that's a very interesting idea. God condemned sin in the flesh. In what flesh? In Jesus' flesh. Jesus took on sinful flesh so that He might condemn sin in the flesh. Jesus, in a sense, was condemned so that for those who are in Christ, there would be no condemnation. Because the condemnation 
has already happened in Christ. And you're not going to be charged again. Isaiah talks about this. If you look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, <clears throat> very powerful. It actually teaches so much about the meaning and the purpose of, of Jesus' uh, death on the cross that it's, in many ways, it's actually even clearer than many New Testament passages that talk about the cross, uh, e- even though it was written hundreds of years before Jesus. But Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've all sinned. And God took all of our sins and laid them upon Jesus. He's experiencing the penalty of sin for us. Skip down to verse 10, Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put put him to grief. If he made himself as an offering for sin... He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So there's a future hope for this offering. He dies, he suffers, he's punished for our sins, and then he'll live beyond it and there'll be rewards. Verse 11, he, he shall see the anguish of his soul and be satisfied. By this knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify the many, for he shall bear their iniquity. So he's going to carry their sins. Verse 12, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. He, he will die for their sins, he, he, not just suffer, but die for their sins. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Thus, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions, transgressors. Whatever sin you're thinking about to yourself. What about this, Lord? What about that sin, Lord? Have you, have you paid for that? I'm here to tell you, Jesus, paid, he bore that sin on the cross already. Jesus literally was condemned for your sin. And that's why there can't be condemnation for you because you're in Christ and he was already condemned for you. Your, your sin was condemned already. Th- think about it. This is, the, this is the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is the incredible freedom that, that we have. And, and that doesn't make me want to sin. Knowing that I'm free doesn't make me say, well, then I want to sin all the more. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it encourages me. It relieves my heart. It, it lets me get up and pray and say, God, I can, I can talk to you, God, because you, you, you really have washed me. Even though, even though I blew it five minutes ago, you're, you've already dealt with it. And I just want to be near you. I want to be close to you. I, I, I don't want to walk in that anymore. I'm just so grateful for, that I'm forgiven. And look back at Romans 8. That's what happened on the cross. Sin was condemned in the flesh. Your sin, my sin, all sin was condemned in the flesh on the cross. It was already done 2,000 years ago. And the results of that are in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law, so there is a righteous requirement of the law, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, So righteousness is necessary. But what he's saying here is now, I will now walk in this righteousness in a new way. How? By by walking in a new nature. Those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I'm going to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to live it out. This is what he's talking about here. When I walk in the Spirit, I'm fulfilling the law. Because if I walk in the Spirit... The scripture says, if I walk in the spirit, I will not fulfill the lusts, the lusts of the flesh. So my obsession then should be walking in the spirit. Lord, am I walking in your spirit right now? Just like the Jews obsession uh, in the Old Testament should have been, am I obeying God's law? Am I following what he wrote through Moses to us? I should be. Lord, am I walking in your spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, all these things, all these wonderful things. Is this what I'm walking in right now, Lord God? This should be my obsession. I I get to stand in the middle and choose to walk in the spirit and, and not walk in the flesh. I can choose that. And if more believers would realize this, I think it would change our lives. Walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. 
Let this be your obsession. Let this be your step-by-step constant thought. Lord, am I walking in your spirit right now or am I not? Now, Now, does this mean that I'm earning salvation if I'm walking according to the spirit, not to the flesh? Let me read verse 4 again. In order that the righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're no longer... What's happening is we're no longer looking at our obedience to the law as the means by which we get saved. Instead, we're looking at obedience to the Lord as the result of our salvation. You couldn't obey before. The law couldn't do it because it was weak through the flesh. But now God gives you the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit. Now you're fulfilling the law without even looking at it. You're just walking in the Spirit. So so that's what it's saying. So... This is God saying, I'll save you, and then that salvation will impact you, and you will see it in your life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I know we're bouncing everywhere today, but I love getting, you know, to be able to try to pull the threads together. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 12 and 13, to me, uh, is one of the best passages of Scripture for capturing how God saves us and then what it looks like in our lives. This is what he says. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? is uh, This is a verse that has been uh, sometimes used out of context to bash people over the head. The, the idea is that you're asking, am I really saved? Am I living out this salvation? But, but read the next verse. For God is the one working in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. So really what I'm doing is, I'm not asking, am I I being good enough to be saved? What you're doing is saying, if I'm saved, if God is working in me, then I should see the new life at work in me. God is working in me to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He's the one that gives me the desire to do what pleases him and then the ability to actually live it out. So so the thing is, if, if you look at your life as a Christian and you go, man, I'm just backslidden all the time. My thought is, well, maybe maybe you're not saved. I don't know. But if that's the case, the solution is, is not to do more good works. The solution is to get on your knees and come to Christ in truth and to really repent and believe. And then he will work in you to both will and to do according to his good pleasure. He'll start doing the work. But you need the salvation experience so that it will give birth to the good works. Faith brings salvation and then good works come automatically. When we follow him. Philippians is a wonderful book because it shows us that it's God who works in us to will and to do what pleases him. Now, as we continue through Romans 8 in the coming weeks, I, 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 I want to kind of just take our time a little bit. There are some challenging things that we'll discuss. And hopefully you're seeing here that there are some themes that are coming together in Christ. That not only through the book of Romans, but throughout all of scripture that are all coming together. But, but these are important because as we master these concepts, as we as we're able to pull the threads together and we see how it all fits together and we begin to get a fuller picture of what Scripture teaches as a whole, then what happens is we are guarded against lies. So when somebody says something that is, that is biblically incorrect, that is a, a, a falsehood, that's a false teaching, it's a heresy, that even if you haven't, you haven't particularly you know, looked at that one passage, you, you have an overall knowledge of how everything fits together so that you hear that and you say, something's, something's not right there. I need to go do some study on this. But it, you'll, we'll be guarded against lies. We'll be guarded against heresies. We'll be guarded against false teaching because we'll realize that that breaks the scripture, that it pulls apart the threads. And now, as we learn these things, we see how it all holds together. And when we see how it all holds together, then it will hold you together. If there's a word we can close with today, I think it's this. And I think this is the the greatest message probably of Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation. Are you in Christ? 
yeah, I'm in Christ, then you can't possibly be condemned. Because who is who could possibly condemn Christ? You're in him. His righteousness is yours. There is no condemnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace of Jesus and that that in Christ there is no condemnation. We thank you, Lord, that that the sin that we have committed has already been dealt with and has already been condemned on the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that I can stand forgiven by the grace of God and it's free and it's complete and it's perfect. And Lord, we, we just love you and thank you for that. And we bless your holy name. Lord, we pray you would just help us to live this out. We, we, we want to not to earn anything, but just to, just to say thank you and love you. Lord, we want to, we want to live it out. So help us to, to know the love and the grace that you've given to us and then to live that out in our lives. Let us be people who are motivated by love, people who walk in the Spirit. And Lord, we pray that you refresh us in our minds and that we would be constantly aware of the fact that when we're, when we're facing decisions or we face challenges or we're facing mean people or we face hard stuff in life or stressful situations and things that we find frustrating that in that moment lord we remember that it's a choice between walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh let us be mindful lord of that spiritual dynamic of that spiritual battle in our lives in everything we do in the strong name of jesus we pray amen